0: This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do.
1: Welcome to the Workplace Podcast, and our topic today is how to help people at work. Our guest is Deborah Grayson Regal. Deborah is a keynote speaker, executive coach, and consultant who has taught leadership communication for Wharton Business School, Duke's Fuqua Business School, Columbia's Business School Women in Leadership Program, and the Beijing International MBA Program at Peking University. She writes for Harvard Business Review. Psychology Today, Forbes and Fast Company, and has been featured in Bloomberg Business Week, The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times. She is the author of today's topic, Go to Help, 31 Strategies to Offer, Ask for and Accept Help, and Overcoming, Overthinking, 36 Ways to Tame Anxiety for Work, School and Life. And consults and speaks for clients including Amazon, BlackRock, Google, Kraft Heinz, PepsiCo and the United States Army. And you can find her at line at www.DebraGreasonRegal.com. Deb, welcome back to the Workplace Podcast.
2: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here again.
1: I am delighted to have you back. And we have such fun before we speak. So I'm going to tell you the context of this book. So when I read this book for the very first time, I was sitting in the emergency department in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And talk about good timing for this book so I make get emotional about this, so I'm still working through. This book helped me in so many ways. And um, talk about a book when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. You appeared for me in this book. Thank you so much. So to give you some context and, and, and background, I was misdiagnosed with a terminal illness, a life limiting illness. So for around six weeks, I I was living all your learnings of this book, and can tell by the shock in your face. So I am still working this out. So I had the tremors and the post traumatic stress and all this type of stuff that I'm still working through. And this book was brilliant. I can tell by your reaction. You're you're shocked at this.
2: Uh, I yes, I just sort of lost a little feeling in my legs and got chills and goosebumps up my shoulders. Can can you tell me how you are?
1: I, I, I am OK. I'm OK. Uh, physically, it's still an emotionally, and it's coming out. Psychology, psychologically, I'm stronger. But, you know, it comes out. Um, I'm just trying to be kind to myself. It's just a process I have to go through. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it, not a lot of people had known. And you were wondering about my absence and I prefer to say it once and say it once only, you know, just in case I got emotional or or whatever. So has been a trying time, but um, am I glad that I teach resilience and am I glad I read your book? And that's why we're here today.
2: Okay. I have a million questions for you, but it's your podcast. Thank you for sharing. And I'm, I'm, I have you in my heart.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. And when we talk about different situations like that where people really need help and and you're, you know, very caring in your approach to me um, and always been so kind to me and generous with your time. Why is it, why is help surprisingly complex? Why do we need a book about it? There's so many facets to it, isn't there?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think about the journey of help in, in three categories. So there's, the complexity of of asking for help there's the complexity of accepting it once you've asked for it and then the challenge of even knowing what to offer when you offer help and so each of those three things has their own cultural challenges psychological challenges interpersonal challenges that start from when we were little or As you might say, from when we were we, yeah. uh, and um, and many of us are still wrestling with some, you know, conditioning and limiting beliefs today. So, the book really takes those three parts and helps people understand why something that seems so simple is actually pretty tricky and complex.
1: Yeah, and I like how you structure the book as well. So, you're, you're seeing it from the theory side of things where you even mentioned Marty Linsky, who's on, on this um, from, from Harvard fame with the adaptive leadership. And you talked about adaptive versus technical challenge. Would you yes. talk us through that? Like what's the difference between a technical challenge and adaptive challenge?
2: Yeah. So and and thank you for citing my sources for me. Yeah. So I'm going to repeat something that I think is really important for people to know, and uh, I did not invent at all. So yeah. thank you for citing it. So a technical challenge is a challenge where the solution to the problem exists. You may not know it. You may not know what the solution is, you may not be sure how to find it, but the answer is out there. And so the way that I think about it is, if what you are missing is a puzzle piece, and once you snap that puzzle piece in the problem is solved, that is a technical challenge. And mm. and many Literally technical challenges are technical challenges. So like, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again, right? That's a puzzle piece that, that fits in. Uh, I think about a lot of the different companies that I consult with, each one of them has a different way of vendor onboarding, of invoicing, um, but there is only one way for each of them, even if they're different from each other. So I just have to find the puzzle piece and snap it in. That's a technical challenge. Much of what we're dealing with, uh, and I certainly think in the case of illness, in the case of COVID, in the case of uh, you know figuring out work and life, of parenting, relationships, we're really talking about an adaptive challenge. And an adaptive challenge is a challenge where there is no one puzzle piece that will get it solved. The answer doesn't actually exist. You have to Experiment your way into a new way of thinking, working, and and you know applying things. And what I've often found is with adaptive challenges, it is that you will cobble together a solution that works until it doesn't, and then you need to come up with another adaptive challenge, uh, another uh, solution for your adaptive challenge. So, in as I wrote in the book, I think COVID was one giant adaptive challenge. There was no missing puzzle piece that we could have found for how to live and work in a global pandemic. We had to make up a whole bunch of stuff and experiment with it. And it worked until it didn't.
1: I could not have phrased that better myself. Uh, That was that was really good. And you talk about the different ways to identify between a pillar and autonomy value. We have very different values when we come to understanding the complexities around how people frame challenges and problems. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so uh, asking for offering and accepting help, uh, as I mentioned before, is really loaded. Um, And so for me, when I ask for help, um, it probably took me longer than it should because of my value around autonomy doing things myself, uh, the value that I have around achievement oh, is means I wasn't able to achieve it myself, right? Yeah. So those are some values that get triggered for other people. Asking for help is hard because they grew up in a culture or a family where you don't actually ask for help outside of your family that would bring shame to the family that somebody thought you needed to out, you know go outside the family for that so it's you know when we think to ourselves why doesn't somebody just ask for help or why don't they just accept the help um We actually are rarely understanding somebody's complete context in what help means. So in the same way that money means different things to different people, for some, it means freedom, for some, it means comfort, for some, you know, it means status, help means different things to different people as well.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that. My approach to help and even my wife's approach to help was very different so when this was all going on physically, I, I was not in a great shape um, and I was I was having that conversation. My wife is, well, what are the different ways people are going to help? And there were some ways that people didn't know how to help. And one of the ways was it was it was a bit for me, for example, and, and you, some of these strategies, which is great in the book is, for example, my older brother drove two hours to coach my son's team, which meant so much to me.
2: Oh my goodness.
1: So every weekend he was coming and then not only that, he was giving me the update. So I was not missing out on anything. He learned every player's name off. He was telling me how they were progressing and all. I get a bit emotional speaking about this, but, you know, all he was taking pictures there, all the various different things, you know, and and it meant such a lot to me that way to help you know, and there were some practical pieces that other people did, even cooking meals. There's loads of different ways. What are the different ways we can help?
2: Oh, well, I mean, there's at least 31 because that's how many we got to in the book. And then people said, why 31? I said, like, I got tired. We ran <laughs> out of ideas. And I just want to make a shout out to my daughter, Sophie, who co-authored this book with me. So between the two of us at 31, we said, I'm out. I was like, we, we got to move on. But um. The way in which we think about help. So first of all, we need to think about whether the person we're helping is faced with a technical challenge or an adaptive challenge, right? Yeah. So you had some technical elements of your challenge, like yeah. dinner has to get cooked, right? So that is yeah. a technical challenge. You need a meal. Guess what? We The puzzle piece is we're going to get you that meal. That's a technical yeah. challenge. Um, but so many of the challenges that you were describing were adaptive, where there is no puzzle piece. So ways of helping, including what I heard you say were, you know, people being empathetic, listening, asking good questions, helping you prioritize, making a plan, helping you focus on what you can do, even when there's things that you can't do, Um, you know, acknowledging painful truths. That's a way of helping is giving somebody the space to say something That feels terrible to have to say or admit Mm. there are those, those are, there's a whole range of ways that we can help. And most of us have been rewarded for telling people how to do something or just doing it for them, right? We get rewarded for stepping in, solving the problem, saving the day. And so it means I think of those as sort of our quadriceps, right? Those are like my big, strong muscles are, let me tell you what to do or step aside. I'm going to do it for you. And we've got all of these other helping muscles that aren't as strong. We don't work them out as much. And sometimes we don't even know that we have it. So I often think about like a day after moving furniture, which I try not to do, you go, I didn't even know a muscle existed there. Are you kidding me? Oh, we've got helping muscles that we don't even know that we have, which is why we want people to become what we call in the book, help fluent, have a wide vocabulary of ways that you can help so that when somebody like you calls and says, like, I need help, but I'm not sure what I need. We have some things we can offer.
1: And it's funny. I didn't know that I needed help or wanted help or or whatever and help just appeared in so many ways and I going kind of going oh i'm glad i read dev's book because i'm now able to accept it and know what it is whether that was collecting my boys from school or you know bringing them to sports training or like i said the meal or even moving furniture around or or even that place to, to vent or even you know i think about my sister how do we be as practical here as possible and and what is that mental toughness that I need to hear? You know, what do what do I need to hear? As well? So there's many different ways.
2: You just made such an important point that I don't want to miss it, which is what do I need to hear? Mm. Um, and I think that if anybody were going to pick some low-hanging fruit from this podcast, yeah. let that be the low-hanging fruit, which is let me ask the person, what do you need to hear right now? As opposed to me assuming I know. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's this there's this category of things we say to people that are called toxic positivity, um, which are my attempt to make you feel better because I'm uncomfortable that both of us are uncomfortable. Right. And so I am imagining and you can absolutely correct me if I'm wrong. What you didn't need to hear is, well, you've lived a good life so far, you know, this far. What you didn't need to hear is like, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, right? What you didn't need to hear is like, you know, it will be okay. You know, you are strong. You probably didn't need to hear those things as much as you needed to hear, I don't even know what to say, but I'm here for you. Or, oh, William, oh, right? And so please ask the other person, what do you need to hear right now? Um, because we tend to over-index on positivity, and it yeah. actually can really rob somebody of their reality.
1: It's a great point. Some people will jump in to go, "I know best," yeah, isn't it? Where it's 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 and there's there's a problem to that. It's it can be um, not empowering or enabling for the person. So you you talk about your your coach experience and and some of the things that you learn from your coaching practice as well, isn't it that you know, is, 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 am I doing this person, you know, a a good service or a good intention with my approach?
2: Yes. Yes. And, and that raises another really great point, which is that there is a really big difference between the intention and the impact. Mm. Right. And so, um, all of us, believe that we are judged on our intentions, right? I was only trying to be helpful. That's a statement of intention, right? But that usually is something you say after you realize the impact was not what you had wanted or expected. Um, and so one of the things we talk about in the book is if there's somebody who isn't accepting help from you or seems to be dashing ar- you know, around it, one of the things that you might check in is, you know, I know I've offered you help in the past, I'm wondering if maybe it wasn't as helpful as I thought it would be, and to get a little bit of feedback. um, Because there are many of us who try to help. I certainly, I don't, I can't think of any place I've made more assumptions um, about my impact based on my intent, intention than with my kids. Um, And luckily, we have the kind of relationship where they're like, mom, I know you're trying to help, but that is a not a helpful thing to say or not a helpful thing to do, and so we got to be mindful about it.
1: So, and and then you mentioned this in the book. How do you know when to step in or just step? There's different people who are more introversion in nature and extroversion, where some people will be maybe closely guarded or maybe not know how to make that request.
2: Yeah. And and so um, I believe in sort of small, small little steps forward over time, as opposed to like, ta-da, I'm here to save the day. Um, you know, that makes us feel better, but it may not be what the other person needs. So you probably want to ask, you probably want to ask more than once, and you also can make some concrete offers, right? So I might, you know, when we think about a situation that you were in, It might have been helpful for me to say, hey, you know, what kind of help do you need? And you might have been completely overwhelmed and not been able to articulate it. And so I might have said, "Um, let me offer a few things and you tell me if any of these would be helpful. I can um, drop off dinner, you know, one or two nights this week. I can pick your kids up from school or um, I can call a couple of people on your behalf just to give them an update. Would any of those things be helpful? I'm game for any and all. And then it would have limited the the range. And sometimes we feel like, oh, limiting a range means I'm not offering a lot. It's actually really helpful when people are emotionally flooded and cognitively flooded to offer a smaller range of options.
1: I love that because a lot of people says, if there's anyone that can help, let me know. And I was just completely blanked. If I'm if if I have to say something I did was I I delegated out (laughs) as much as I could to say but for you I, I was so blessed with so many people contacting me you know um in so many ways and it was it was that outpouring of love that I really found most difficult. Uh I found it very hard to absorb. Um and that was the one things about this was actually the the pain this caused. So for me a part of how I help myself and sometimes there's a responsibility is how do I help myself? So I had to get psychological help.
2: Good for you
1: through this, you know, and, and again, that was that was about knowing what I can do for myself. But, you know, sometimes I just need to go. Actually, I need help in these areas.
2: Yes. Yeah. And that is really hard for some people and really easy for others. But the culture in which we grew up and, you know, how we were rewarded or punished for asking for help all along the way really contributes to that. So know that you're you know catching somebody at a snapshot in time, but it's really a movie of their life, how they respond uh, to you know offers of help. So for my parents, um, one of the the one of the compliments that my parents often gave me was, "You're incredibly resourceful. I misinterpreted it, so I want to put the onus on me. After feedback from my parents, I understand that I have to take responsibility for misinterpreting it. I thought that resourceful means you, Deb, are the resource. So you alone need to figure it out. That wasn't what they intended. It's how I heard it. And so I am self-reliant to a fault and almost to an embarrassment where when I was writing this book with Sophie, I went, You know what? I don't know that I'm actually credible on this while we're writing this book. I need to go out and start asking for help because I need to reinterpret what resourceful means, which is drawing on your resources, which includes other people.
1: Yeah. And and then you talk about the language and the conditioning from parents. And then some people, you know, think it's a request. Some people's a demand. It's an obligation. What's what's the difference between all of those? How do you know?
2: Uh, in terms of uh, how they see help, yeah, yeah, um, you can't necessarily know it unless you ask them. I mean, sometimes people will let you if you know if you're lucky and you have that kind of relationship with somebody. Somebody might be very clear. This isn't a good time, right? I want it. In general, I want to help you, but right now I've got a lot going on. Um, sometimes you might notice it through body language, like okay, yeah, I'll help. When you're like, hold on, hold on a second there, right? Your face and your tone are not matching the words. What is it really? Right. And so sometimes you just need to ask the other person. Right. I hear you saying you'll help. And I also in the same breath heard you talk mm. about being completely overwhelmed. Let me check in with you about that um, and to share like I know that you intend well, but you helping me when you actually are overwhelmed, it isn't helpful to either of us. So it's a conversation.
1: Yeah. And speaking of conversation, then, say I'm on somebody's request and Something of me. How do I yeah. sort of say no to a request? That's that's you because that's gonna go. Oh, I have to say yes. There's like a social obligation. Yeah, there.
2: I I actually had this happen last night. So I want to give a, a shout out to uh my colleague uh Kathleen O'Grady, who uh is a, a wonderful coach. And we were texting uh we were supposed to have a call, we got on the phone for like two minutes, and then she got another call. And she, I said you know, text me back if, if you still want to talk after this call. And I don't know if you can hear, I have like a raspy voice and I've got this barking cough. And by the time she texted me back, she said, I would love to talk. But if you're tuckered out, you know, we don't have to talk. And my initial obligate, my initial thought was, I told her I would talk to her. Of course, I need to talk to her. And then I said, she just gave me an out. I don't feel well. I'm really tired. I'm going to take that out because I trust that she means it. And I said, thank you. I'm going to take that out. I'm exhausted. My voice isn't really good and I really need to rest it. And so uh, even with somebody where I have a close trusting relationship, who is a professional coach who knows how to advocate for herself. I had to advocate for myself, even though she made it easy.
1: Yeah. And there is something about boundaries as well, isn't there? That some people will say this is too much or, And it's the hard truth, isn't it, about about how some people don't want to be helped because maybe it's you. You say that in the book, that is the hard truth.
2: That is the hard truth that there are people who think they're being helpful and they are not helpful to you in the way that you need to be helped. So, for example, I am somebody who can get I can get myself to that silver lining and that bright side and the lessons learned from a setback. But I don't want somebody to tell me that, right? I can tell me that when I'm ready. So when I'm having a tough time, I'm going to call the friends of mine who, when I go, this awful thing happened, even if it's not awful to them, they're going to go, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. That's who I want to hear as opposed to you'll figure it out, (laughs) Mm. right? Or God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I do not want to hear that. So those aren't the people that I call until I'm already there myself and then we can have a really good conversation about that perspective
1: and and sometimes there's a lot of, a lot of times it is understanding someone who doesn't want to be helped what are the many different reasons I'll give you one reason uh, uh, one explanation is um I I was so emotionally and physically and mentally tired that somebody says I really want to visit Wouldn't it come <clears throat> come over and cheer you up and I just said I'm saving my energy for the kids yeah. and I just want it to be, I want to be strong and, and stuff like that. And, um, and I was just exhausted and I just asked my wife, text that person back and I said, I really want to see them. Not right now. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the different reasons that people maybe don't want to be helped that we might make assumptions on?
2: Yeah. So there is, you know, don't want to be helped don't want to be helped right now, don't want to be helped by you, don't want that specific kind of help that you're offering, right? So, it you know, this is something when my very, one of my very first jobs out of grad school was uh, doing uh, solicitation training or canvasser training. So helping people who were fundraisers ask for money and you have to deal with no all the time. And no could mean 30 different things, right? So in the same way that a no, I don't want help could mean 30 different things, it can be helpful to find out, but maybe now is not the right time to press them for what that no actually means, right? Maybe come back a little bit later. Um, And so sometimes it's a no, not now, but I'll reach you when I need something. No, I don't need the kind of help that you can give. Um, no, now's not you know a great time. And then sometimes it's just, no, um, I don't want help. Um, and that is something that we certainly see with our kids, with our family members, our friends in the workplace. One of the things that um, a piece of research that I was really fascinated by is the idea that starting at around age seven, we start to um, assume that. Asking for help or needing help is going to negatively impact our reputation. Mm. So at age seven, so I don't know about you, I am 50, right? So I have had 43 years of a neural pathway going, if you need help, it means you're weak. If you need help, it means you're lazy. If it you need help, it means you're dumb. That's a lot of rewiring that I need to do um, to convince myself that help is not just okay, but it's good. Um, And so if you imagine that most people have been conditioned to assume taking help or asking for help is going to make me look weak, uh, dumb, lazy, then you can understand why people would reject it.
1: I am so glad you said that because... And I, 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 seem to have read this book just at, at that passage at the right time. I was like, and then I went to myself. I'm really good at this. I'm really good at asking for help when I need it.
2: Yes, woohoo! You're the one.
1: I, I, I was really comfortable. I was going to go. Okay, I'm, I'm good with the boundaries, you know. And and then, then I was, I, I was concerned about the emotional toll that it can take on people. Can can helping all the time. Take an emotional toll.
2: Absolutely. Well, I'm going to assume that anything all the time can take an emotional toll. Yeah. You know, other than maybe petting my my dog who's napping over there, that doesn't take an emotional toll. So there's two things that that we think about. So number one is the helper's high, which is this like burst you get when you are helping someone. It feels really good. It's like super druggy, but totally legal. Um, and then there is helper's fatigue, right? And helper's fatigue is I am so busy helping either so deeply or so broadly that I am burning out. Mm. Um, and so, and often when we are so, uh, you know, uh, motivated by that high, we forget that it's got, it's got a, a downside as well. So yes, people uh, need to think about what, it, what are the best people uh, that I should be helping. And by best people, I mean, who are the people for whom this relationship really matters to me? Um, And is there a piece of help that only I can uniquely give? And if there are other people who can give it, suggest them.
1: Yeah, there's some great advice there. And, And then there's a term that you have in your book, an illegitimate task. What is an illegitimate task?
2: So an illegitimate task is a task um, where the person to whom it has been assigned thinks to themselves, I don't know why we're doing this. This doesn't fit into my job description. There has to be an easier way. Like, what am I, why am I doing this? And so we find uh, the research shows that one of the leading causes of depression and anxiety in the workplace is people who have too many illegitimate tasks where they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, why there isn't a simpler way or why somebody all of a sudden thought that this was their job when it actually has very little to do with what they thought they were hired to do.
1: So what's an example of an illegitimate task? If I'm someone at work listening in or if I'm someone that's trying to help someone out, what does that look like?
2: Uh, well, I mean, an illegitimate task could be anything. So, for example, an illegitimate task would be um, perhaps taking a, a document or a proposal through ten iterations of something when it was really good enough by the third, right? So, it's people who are maximizing rather than satisfying. To, to you know, buy some, uh, to borrow some terms, right? This was fine at three, and now you're just. Like, these are tiny changes. This feels like an illegitimate use of my time. That would be an example. Or let's say there's somebody who um, uh, is not a supervisor and is quite clear that they're not a supervisor and somebody asked them to sort of manage a couple of interns, right? They're like, hold on, I'm not a supervisor. That's not something that I wanted to do. And just because it's interns doesn't mean, that now I'm not supervising. That's not part of my job description. We didn't have a conversation about it. Um, where is that coming from? And isn't there somebody else who could do it? So I wanna be mindful about just regular complaining about work, right? We we all complain about work. I think that's you know part of the part of the vibe of work. But when there is something where you are like, there has to be an easier way, this doesn't make sense. Why me have a conversation about it? And what the research shows is that the, the best way to mitigate the depression and anxiety of illegitimate tasks is to be even more appreciative and demonstrate even more gratitude than you think you need to. People may not understand why they're doing it, but if you continue to demonstrate your appreciation for it, that will buy you a little bit of time. But also be transparent, right? I'm choosing you because there, we don't have anybody else to do it. That may not make them feel good, but it's at least transparent in where this is coming from.
1: And that's where unrealistic expectations can float in, can't they? And that's a real danger, those unrealistic expectations.
2: Yeah, unrealistic expectations of what you're expecting me to do, uh, you know, what this job is about, and... Far too often I work with people in my coaching practice who feel that way and have never voiced it, have never actually asked for help. So they're sitting there in a stew of their own frustration and resentment and are unwilling, unable, some mix of the two to have the conversation.
1: So we talk about the cognitive piece then as well. So multitasking. Yeah. what is what is the problem with multitasking and <laughs> and help
2: yeah so let me start by saying I multitask every single day all day so mm. I'm gonna tell you what's wrong with it and I'm going to tell you that I do it uh yeah. but you know in in general there's um I think it's called a switching tax something like that yeah. right so switching the mode switching S- mode. Switching mode, right.
1: Yeah, and, there's yeah. a,
2: and there's a tax, like there's a cognitive tax that we pay for switching between tasks because when we're working on something and then we move on to something else, our brain doesn't just automatically ready itself to pick up where we want to start. Um, there's a lag time. And every time we multitask, it costs us that switching tax or that lag time that builds up over time. Um, and so I I know the cognitive science behind it and I'm still multitasking. So I'd want to just put that out there.
1: And isn't there a a statistic behind this that you're 25% slower when you're multitasking or something to that effect? It's in the high twenties anyways.
2: It's in the high twenties. And I guess as you say that, now I want to double down on justifying why I multitask. (laughs) Uh, So I work very quickly. So I'm the sort of person who would like, block out four hours for something and it'll be done in an hour and a half. And so maybe, maybe I'm just thinking it through here. Maybe I am willing to pay the switching task because I work so quickly.
1: Okay. So how does that, how does multitasking then get in the way of people helping at work?
2: Then? Right. So number one is if you are constantly playing, pay, paying that switching task, Uh, tax, you probably don't have a lot of extra time to be helpful to people, right? So it's all drawing from the same bank of time, right? So that's number one. Uh, Number two is if I'm multitasking, um, I might ask for help on something that I actually could do myself if I weren't multitasking, right? If I actually had the cognitive focus to get something done and get it done right, I actually would be able to do it myself. And so it might lead to an unnecessary ask uh, and it can also lead to an unnecessary drain of time.
1: That's exactly what you wrote. It's about personal responsibility here.
2: Yes. Oh, I like that even better.
1: Okay. No, we both know you wrote it, or maybe Sophie wrote that part of the book.
2: She probably did. <laughs> I right, let's give her credit for that one. And,
1: and and then and this is where I was coming to my train of thought. Then so you have multitasking, then then you have the cognitive biases that come in, whether they are confirmation bias or whatever. How does that get in the way of help?
2: Uh well anything that's a bias gets in the way of fill in the blank, right? So Mm -hmm. we have these cognitive biases, these shortcuts that help us think and make decisions more quickly because if we didn't have them every day would be a brand new day without any history or any guidance for how we decide things. So I want to give like a shout out for, you know, cognitive mental models and Frameworks and a bias is when it becomes overused and actually serves as a blinder to the thing so for example um confirmation bias which is where we scan the environment only for information that supports our perspective and point of view one of the ways that confirmation bias shows up in in asking people for help is you know how often I hear people say others are too busy right? Mm. I don't want to bother other people, right? They've got their own stuff to deal with. That is typically based on an assumption um, and then confirmed through confirmation bias, which is you are looking for evidence that supports that they're too busy to help you. So if, you know, if you're talking to a colleague and you could really use their help and they go, oh my goodness, every day when I get out of work, I don't even go to the gym. I just go home because I'm so wiped that's evidence that you are using to convince yourself you shouldn't ask them for help um and it it may be irrelevant right they may be completely ready willing and able to help you and even more there's that helper's high right there you've got somebody who's not energized but i'm asking you for help that is an opportunity for that person to get energized by helping me
1: yeah and that's when you talk about There's a a dark side to that reciprocal altruism, isn't there? It's that give and take, which is great, but that can be addictive then as well.
2: Yes. Right. So we are pro social creatures. We are are wired to help each other. It's what helps us survive. We've got this, uh, you know, reciprocity bias. So there is that word again. So what you do for me, I want to do for you and vice versa. But if it becomes a numbers game, or if it be like, hey, you, I just helped you, so now you should help me. Or if it becomes a quid pro quo, like I will help you, but you're gonna have to do these things. Um, help doesn't feel uh, well intended. Uh, it feels like it feels like a transaction that I might not want to be a part of.
1: Now, what are the kind of the, the the approaches that you should avoid when you're asking for work? So you mentioned quid pro quo and and stuff like that. What are the different ways that are really unhelpful.
2: Uh, So a quid pro quo is if somebody asks you for help and you give them a quid pro quo, that's very unhelpful. If somebody asks you for help and you um, remind them or remind them why they shouldn't need your help, right? That's not particularly helpful. If you help somebody and then tell everybody else who you helped, That, you know, that makes you look good. It doesn't make the other person feel good. Um, If you help somebody without checking in to see if this help is actually what they need, that is not particularly worthwhile. Um, It's also not helpful to offer to help um, if you actually can't, don't, or won't help them. Right? That's worse.
1: Yeah. Okay, and it's really good to remind ourselves of that. There's certain things that do work. the certain stuff. You know what? That's that's not helpful. Um, and I might I might ask you about the different mindsets. So there's the resourceful mindset, the appreciative mindset, and the hopeful mindset. I really liked this approach. Talk, yeah. Talk so
2: I it? just want to say for a moment nobody has ever asked me such detailed questions about the book this is i'm like whoa that's such a good topic i wrote that sophie wrote that i have never had this level of this is fascinating and and now i feel like i have to remember my homework from a year ago this is great okay well
1: all my all the people all the guests say the same thing actually after so thank you very much for giving that that compliment i i read every page Every you page.
2: read every page. I am really impressed. So, okay, so three mindsets. So the resourceful mindset, this is a mindset that I learned when I went to coaching school. And the idea is that you actually can't be particularly helpful to somebody other than fixing it for them. Like, let me tell you what to do, or let me do it for you. Um, any other kind of help requires you to believe that the other person is resourceful, meaning that they have resources, they have access to resources, and they can tap into those resources that are not you. If mm. you believe that you are the only thing keeping this person from falling off a cliff, um, you are basically treating them as broken and you are gonna create a relationship that is pretty unhealthy. So a resourceful mindset is, I believe that you have many resources available to you, of which I am one, Um, and that, you know, you can draw on those. I'm not the only person in your life, the only thing that can help you. So that's number one. I believe you're capable of figuring out resources. Number two is the appreciative mindset. And so uh, the appreciative mindset comes from uh, the world of appreciative inquiry. Mm. Um, and the idea of having an appreciative mindset is, um, Focus on not just what isn't working, but what is working, right? And again, I don't want somebody to tell me what is working when I'm in the depths of what isn't, but to keep in mind that um, we all have things that are going for us, even when we're asking for help. So when we think about that potential you know, reputational concern that we start growing at around age seven- I want you to know that if I ask you for help on publicizing my podcast, for example, Mm. I don't have one and I'm not going to have one. Um, But if I asked you for that kind of help, I would want you to also know that I'm good at other things, right? This is the place where I need help, but I've got some strengths in other places. And then the third one was the hopeful mindset. And the hopeful mindset is um, the belief that I have control and agency over big parts of my life um, that things can and will get better um, and that I will find some tools to help me get there. And so I just think even that phrase alone of it gets better um, is such an important one for us to think about when we need help, one of the ways in which one of the ways in which things get better is by asking for help.
1: So I, I, just a comment on that, that hopeful piece, that was something that I might get emotional as I say this, a physiotherapist said to me, she says, you will, she looked me straight in the eye. And she says in four months time, you will be fully rehabilitated. And 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 I believed her because she believed in the message. Now we we're both wearing masks and, and yeah. stuff like that. And I was like, I, it just hit me straight oh, in.
2: That is hope.
1: And I was like, I needed this. I didn't know yes. I needed this. Thank you so much. You know, yes. and it was so reassuring. And and a lot of the messages, that, you know, with a couple of friends of mine, it was it was so hopeful, in the, it, the approach. And even something my wife said was, even, you know, when I got the good news that it was okay, it was like, you know, something that I found really helpful, but I didn't really articulate it in, my own head was that she said I was really proud of how you did this with strength and grace, you know, and positivity. Mm. And I remember kind of going, Oh, that's the kindest thing anybody's ever said to me and it's brilliant that it's coming from my wife, you know? So, yeah. um, and, and it's because I, I suppose it was a bit, a bit like that Marvel's team, uh, Marvel, the Avengers assembled, you know, yeah. I was like, I surrounded myself with the people that I needed.
2: Yes, you did. Yes. And and far too often, we don't think about our assembly of Avengers until we're in a very dark place. And Mm. I want people to know they're not waiting for you to be in the darkest place to assemble. They're available for you now.
1: Yeah, I can wholeheartedly, you know, concur with that and agree with that, you know, and, and and people are just more than willing to help me so i think there's a a real positive message for this to our listeners is people are a lot are a lot more willing to help than to when you realize or or think more of you than you realize and that was one of the gifts from this uh is that uh you know you probably mean a lot to people and you don't realize yes,
2: uh, yes ab- absolutely and wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if we all knew it in our lifetimes as opposed to after?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I yeah. I'm lucky I, I got a head start on that, uh, yeah. which is great. Yeah, which is yeah great. but we don't
2: have to do that, right?
1: <laughs> no, no, thank God. And and, come here, and I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to finish up on this because I, I think it's, it's really good uh, for people. So if it's okay, just for five more minutes, what, what are the different kinds of empathy? So I think, I think that was really good.
2: Yeah, so three different kinds of empathy and I um think this is either from the work of John Gottman or Daniel Goleman. Um and so I'm going to cite both sources and then I can get some angry emails that I will respond to with humility. So three kinds of of empathy. The first kind of empathy is cognitive, the second is emotional, and the, the third is behavioral or compassionate. So cognitive empathy is I understand your thinking, even if that's not my thinking, right? I understand why you would think that. Number two is emotional. I understand how you're feeling or why you would feel that way. And then the third one is, and I wanna help, right? How can I help? Um, And so those first two kinds of empathy are things that I practice a lot um, in campaign, like political campaign season, as much as I would never vote for the other guy, right, Uh, or the other person, I can, in many cases, understand the thinking that would lead to somebody wanting that person. I can understand the emotions of, like, fear and hopelessness and all these sorts of things that would lead to that. I don't want to help them get that person elected, but I use, like, political campaign season to really strengthen those muscles of, you know, understanding somebody's thoughts and feelings, even if they're very different from yours.
1: Deb, you have educated us with this language, this fluency in help. Thank you so much for your time today. And if people were to get in touch with you, Deb, how am I to do so?
2: Oh, so many options. Well, let me give you my home address. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, unless you want to, you know, send me some chocolate, then then I will give it to you, but just reach me. So you can reach me on my website and I imagine you'll put this up in writing somewhere. Uh, yep, deboragraceandriegel.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the one in the fuchsia jacket. I'm wearing this color on LinkedIn so you can find me. I don't have glasses. I was a lot younger then. Um, and um, I have a YouTube channel channel so come join my 106,000 subscribers on youtube and you'll get tips like this uh either every day or when i get to it
1: deb thank you so much for that for holding this space for me i found it quite difficult at times even though it might come out through my voice for our listeners um it was it was a bit emotional for me uh thank you so much for that And I think this is such a wonderful conversation to have. And I hope many others have those conversations of help in the workplace.
0: Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at different paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.